is the Three Preachers Podcast, featuring three preachers talking about life, church, and of course, the Word of God. And now, welcome to the Three Preachers Podcast. I said a hip hop, the hip it, the hip it, the hip hip hop, you don't stop the rockin' to the bang bang boogie, say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie. Welcome to the Three Preachers Podcast, or as I like to call it this week, the Devin Roasting Podcast. Well, I guess technically that might be every week, but especially this week because Devin's not here. Yeah. So, and why is he not here, David? Would you tell our listeners why he's not with us today? He claims, he claims that he has to go meet his mother to pick up his children. But let's turn this into a mystery podcast because we need to solve this. Last week, he had to leave early to take his kids to go meet his mother. Then Monday, he left early because he had to go take his kids to meet his mother. This is the third time now. He's taking his kids to meet his mother a lot. Yes, I'm thinking this is code. So we need to decipher what this we is code language for. Decipher form. what the code is. So I was going to go to a different angle. I was like, Devin needs to get control of his family. Like he needs to decide Ooh. what's more important, the three preachers podcast or his children. I think there's some type of misplaced priorities. I think for our listeners, it's just disrespectful because our <laughs> listeners sit on the edge of their seat every week waiting for a new episode to drop. Yeah. And for them to come on here on a Thursday, excited, they've just eagerly anticipated this. They've built it up in their heads. And then they press play on their podcast. And there's only two voices. Yeah. No Devin. Disrespectful. It's, it's like we've, we, we're being disingenuous. We say three preachers podcast. They tune in, and there's two of us, and they're like, that's a lot. We're guilty of false advertising, aren't we? we? We're bearing false witness against ourselves. Devin, you have caused us to sin. (laughs) That is what you have done here. And I bet our listeners don't understand why he would pick his kids over this podcast. No. I know you're outraged. No. I know you didn't pick your kids over this podcast. Matter of fact, you're probably hiding in the bathroom right now from your kids listening listening to this this podcast. podcast. (laughs) Because we know how this works. So, so we... You and I had two different Sundays. Uh, David <laughs> preached a really great sermon while I passed the kidney stone. <laughs> I wonder which one was more painful. <laughs> no, I mean, it's uh, it's just the juxtaposition of two different different days. Like, yeah, I was going to ask, how was your week been? But, uh... <laughs> it was not good. <laughs> but it was really good, actually, if you go back. and For the people that you took a really The sermon hard... or the kidney stone? No, oh. not the kidney stone. I'll tell you that. <laughs> But the the passage, I think, what was good, and I think people that don't preach do not get this. So it's hard to take a a passage like, you know, straight is the way, narrow, narrow and straight. Very hard to take that and and put that in a way that a modern person could grasp. And you did a really good job of that, like asking people to let go of those things that's actually hindering their walk. And I think that was excellent. way that you exegeted it, the way you, you applied it to us where people were challenged. And, and in a positive way. So you did it without like crushing people. Because that passage could crush people. Uh, yeah. Well, that's what I was like wrestling with something like that. Liter- I mean, literally, you're taking a sermon and then you're trying to preach a sermon on it. <laughs> preach a sermon on a sermon. And you're just like, but Jesus is, I mean, it's, it's Never pretty. Never really thought, thought about that it's way. It's pretty point blank. Like there's not really, I mean, what are we going to go into the, uh, the, the, the measurements of the narrow path like what are we are we gonna you can't really break it down anymore it's, it's pretty pl- point blank right there 
And uh, <laughs> so I was like, man, I, there's not really anything you can go and de- well, I'm not going to give you the, the history because uh, <laughs> there's nothing there. It's just, hey, point blank, narrows the path, wides the, you know, and all the other things there. And so what? for me, it was like, hey, and you know how this is. Uh, when it comes to preaching, you, nine times out of ten, and preaching out of your own pain or your own struggles or something that's going on in your life. And I was like, man, looking at this passage, it just comes down to there's something, there's something that's blocking me. There's something that I've put in priority uh, in the place of God in my life, or I'm just choosing the easy way out right now, and that is the wider path. It's easier. Yeah, and and it's easier to walk the wider path if you're carrying all that baggage. You know, it, it you can you can fit on the pathway because uh, yeah. the image <clears throat> I was getting from the sermon. Sorry about that. The image I was getting was. This is how I saw like my own walk. Is you were challenging people to give up those things they're holding on to, and if you're holding on to this oblong object, you know that's taking up the the space. As I'm going the way, I'm whacking people that <laughs> <Right up to, laughs> side the head as I'm walking down the narrow path, and I'm also not able to clearly follow Christ because of all these obstacles that I'm holding on to. These things that are holding me back, mm-hmm. and I thought that was an easy image for me to grasp at that moment and say there are things that we need to relinquish that are killing us they're they're destroying us spiritually and what i I loved about it was i've heard that that passage preached many times and basically when it was preached it was on a lot of people going to hell you know that's that's what i've always heard and that i think the heart of that was not so much a lot of people are going to hell it's this sense of what what is obstructing you from following christ on the way and i and i love the what's really cool too once you get into the book of Acts and other places, um, the church is called the way. That's what we're called. We are the way. And then in Mark's gospel, Jesus is always on the way. So there's this thing of following Jesus is not static. It's dynamic. You know, Th- There's things that, that hold us back from following him dynamically like that, if that makes sense. So I thought that was really good. So it's funny how different people hear a sermon and images are conjured to mind. And that's what I was thinking going I've got all this stuff strapped to me, and I'm trying to like, you know, walk along the path, and it's slowing me down, or I can't, I can't fit through the way because I've got all this other junk, and you've got to let it go. Mm. I don't know. I like that, that might not be what you're looking. No, for. no, I like the. I didn't think about the baggage on a wider path versus narrow path. You yeah. can't walk that narrow path. When That's you're... how my weird mind operates. Oh well, <laughs> well, I will obviously he'll be back this week, but I guess you won't. I guess Devin's preaching this week. Devin's preaching, and so what we're going to try to do? Uh, well, that's if he's. Gonna, <coughs> we don't know. He might be going to meet his mother. He's probably going to tell me about thirty minutes before <laughs> the sermon. He's, he's got to go meet his <laughs> mom. <laughs> and whatever that code language is, I'm going to have to figure that out. But uh, it may be he just doesn't like being around us. That, you ever thought about that? Because it's always me and you. The choice he's making when he says that. Mm. You know, I don't believe that because we're just a joy to be around. So there's no way there's... <laughs> it's his loss. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. No, but what we're trying to do is um, every so many weeks we're going to have a set schedule where you guys preach back to back. I think it's very powerful. Um, you guys do a great job. And I think I need to hear it. Members need to hear it. So I get, I get preached to. I get challenged. The members are hearing a different voice. They're hearing different perspectives. And the way I look at it here at Westgate, we have ministers of the word, and the three of us are called to be ministers of the word, and that's what we do. That's what this podcast is about, too. Well, we're right? going to call it the three ministers of the word, but that was just too long. Yeah, so that's kind of yeah, wonky. Then we're going to go with three, uh, what is it that uh, Bob always calls 
pontificators. Okay. Three pontificators. That's what we should have called it. it yeah. three, three pontificatings, pontific, pontificators, pontificating. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. On pontifications. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I don't know if we can pontificate on this or not. I guess we're just going to talk. Well, I guess we can pull through without Devin. We can do it. We'll we try. We can do it. He's, I mean, he's our expert on the podcast. We got it. We, we can try. Oh, yeah. So we're going to continue talking about basically what church history. That's not really the... Uh, some of it. It's yeah. kind of what we devolved to a little bit. You, you got to to talk about how we got here. Yeah. You know, with all the different churches. So this was a, a question uh, about, you know, I guess, I think it was more about our current, like, denominations and, and different setups. But in order to get to that point, we started way back when, and we're going to continue that today. Yeah. From uh, from the venerable A.M. Dixon. <laughs> we'll continue his question today. <laughs> Do you know Alan? Or did you see uh, the text Alan sent? It was like, no one's ever called me except my dad. <laughs> no one will call me Alan Michael except my dad. And I was like, I, I do, but I'm going to call him A.M. Dixon. A.M. Dixon. A.M. Dixon. <laughs> the, <laughs> from, ven- the venerable A.M. Dixon. From a, from the scholarly work of A.M. Dixon comes this question. I just have this image of the bearded Alan Michael Dixon smoking <laughs> a pop by the fireplace. <laughs> And, and he has to talk like this when he speaks. Yes. Alan, Alan Michael Dixon. Welcome to Bible Hour with A.M. Dixon. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Tune in next week when the venerable Robert Romai will join us for <laughs> tea and crumpets in his small little doggy. <laughs> Bob Romai's got this tiny dog, by the way. Okay, we got to get off yeah. roasting people, but like he's this giant... I know. Strappy fellow, you know he's crossfitting and Bob coffee is, drinking, and he's like the he's like just a contradiction because when he talks, you're like, man, this guy's like scruff, and you know, like <laughs> he's just you know rough on the edges, and he's a man's man. But then he comes walking in with this tiny dog, and you're just like, I, I how did know, that happen? I don't know with the pink sweater, little and, bitty dog, <laughs> <laughs> and he's got cats too. He does, yeah. Okay, we're gonna stop for you. Like the hunts us down, he kills us. Yeah, he's probably on his way right now. Well, yeah, he's probably on his way right now. All right, so last week was Catholic, Anglican, uh, and Eastern Orthodox. What are we talking about this week? I thought today we could switch to what's called the Continental Reformation. And if you look at church history, you can break it down into 500-year segments. Maybe it helps. You have the first 500 years of church history. You've got the advancement of the, the church in the West and the East. Christianity grows exponentially. Then we, we go through what's called the Dark Ages, so there's a decline. Then there's the re-evangelization of Europe from places like uh, Lindensfarne and England, where they send missionaries in to take the European continent for cross again. So you have this re-evangelization, re-evangelization that happens around 500, 600 St. Patrick people like that. Uh, then you have in 1000, the Great Schism we talked about last week, where East and West churches break. And then in 1500, we have like the big event that really impacts us. So this is the one... It really impacts some things we do at Westgate, um, ways that we do church, ways we've been influenced. We might not realize it comes from the Protestant Reformation. So I thought maybe we could talk about the two, what's called magisterial reform traditions or the two traditions that come from the Continental Reformation, which would be the Lutheran Church and the Reformed or Presbyterian Church. What do you think about that? Um, I'll allow it. Okay, this is going to be become the podcast of No Devin and Chris Cleared His Throat 70,000 times. <laughs> what is wrong with me today? Anyway, I was fine until we started. Yeah. It happens every time. You just got emotional when Devin. That's it. I was just, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I had this, uh, Sarah McLaughlin song playing <laughs> in the background. Like, 
I don't know. <laughs> What's that song they play with the animals? You know, uh, the, the, the commercial. In the arms <laughs> you can adopt Fluffy for five cents a week. You can change Fluffy's life. <laughs> I don't know if the voice was like that. That was, that was actually I probably listened to it. It was like that. Kind of that Mickey Mouse a little bit. There. Like, well, That's just how I. You hear can it. adopt this dog. <laughs> That's how I hear it. Yeah, I don't know. Whew, like well, I said, it's how I interpret things. This grid, you know. Maybe Devin's the one that keeps us on track because we, uh, we so. keep we starting and then sorry. <laughs> down rabbit It's my holes. fault today. Sorry. I he was, didn't take his ADD medicine. That's it. So he's Left it at home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Reformation, is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so confused now. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the 1500s. So we jump into Martin Luther's the guy. He kind of sets this thing off. It sets the world on fire, literally, in, in a sense. So Luther is an Augustinian monk. He's a German guy. He's working in Wittenberg. So he's ordained about 1507, I think, is when he's ordained to the Catholic priesthood. Uh, he's studying. He's you know, growing, learning. And he starts to have some doubts about things. So I think where things start to get leverage for him is something's going on in the West at that, that time called indulgences. Uh, indulgences get really big. And there's a guy named Johann Tetzel who's going around drumming up support to add on to St. Peter's Basilica. They're trying to, to build some things there in Rome, at the Vatican, and they're raising money. So they're going to use indulgences to do that. Indulgences, a lot of people misunderstand. An indulgence basically was if you paid money or, or did certain things for the church, you would get time out of purgatory. So it was not salvation versus damnation. Some people say, oh, it's a get out of hell free card. No, that's not what it was. People that, that go to purgatory in Catholic thought, those are people that are saved per se, but they've got some cleaning up to do. They got some after death counseling, you know, divine purgation to get rid of some sins they're dealing with before they can go into the what's called the beatific vision of heaven. Tetzel's going around and saying, you're... And your ancestors or your mom or dad who passed away, your brother or whatever, we know they had some trouble and they're being purged right now by the fires of purgatory. You know, they're being in torment in purgatory. And he would entice these people to buy these things. And so he had poor people buying things, just like you see televangelists, you know, take advantage of right, poor people right, today. Right. They're using their money they don't really have to, to buy these indulgences. Luther's like, this is crazy. Now, how Luther knows this is crazy is a lot of stuff's happening at the same time. Uh, you have what's called a return to the sources. The Latin phrase is ad fontis. Guys like Erasmus and others came before Luther, but there was this return to the biblical text, which seems kind of crazy to us. Like, that's what you should be doing is reading the Bible. But there was just a lot of ignorance at that time, even among the clergy, about the text. There was a revival in learning Greek and Hebrew. So a lot of these people, like Luther and others, were learning to read the Bible in its original language. They're looking at the text brand new. They're not looking at the Latin translations anymore. And they start to see things in the church that they're like, I don't see this in the text, and I think there's problems. They start to challenge tradition. They start to challenge authority. Now, there's a lot going on. The reason that's happening, there's something called nominalism uh, that William of, of Occam, I think, or I think it was William of Occam was the nominalist. But anyway, this philosophical system where kind of like the way we think scientifically, you know, and I'm really oversimplifying this, so if you're a philosopher out there, you're not going to like this caricature of nominalism. I'm not sure we have any philosophers. <laughs> we, we, if we do, I'm sorry. I know there's a lot more to nominalism. Bob likes to think he's a philosopher, but I don't know if he is. <laughs> so basically, you can look at the text, you can 
reason from that and then determine universals from that. So kind of a bottom up, like re, like we do. We do that naturally. It's just how we think today. We, we've inherited this way of thinking, which I'm, I think is a good way to think, by the way. It's not bad. And it challenges authority structure. So Luther goes, look, the Bible is the word of God. And I see things in the church I don't like. So you know, he, he nails the 95 theses on the wall of the Wittenberg Castle. And people say, that started the Reformation. Really, really it didn't. What, what he was doing was inviting an academic debate. That was not uncommon. You know, for the longest I thought, you know, it was Luther had decided he's no longer Catholic. He was going to go back to the Bible and try to reestablish a pure church. He writes down all these arguments he's got on these 95 theses, and he goes and nails it to the door of the castle saying, I'm done with you guys. Here, Here's why. That's actually not what happened at all. He still wants to be a Catholic priest and, and monk and teacher. This is like an academic exercise. So if you want an academic debate, you would do this, and usually that was safe. Well, the problem with that is the printing press has been invented at this time, and now these people can take something like the 95 Thesis and make a whole lot of copies of it really fast and get it out to people. So this 95 Thesis, which would have been in other times, maybe 50 years before, 100 years before, just an academic debate, takes hold all over Germany. And so he starts something he never knew that was going to catch on like this. And because of that, the authorities react not like they normally would. And they realize they got a problem on their hands. You've got people questioning the church, questioning authority. Luther develops in his understanding and, and comes to a realization, too, of the gospel. He's a guy that doubted his salvation all the time, was always just terrified he was damned. And he came to a realization that it was not the strength and power of his faith, but the promise of the gospel, what we would call the objective promise of the gospel. Luther was really big that the gospel is something that was accomplished for us that's already been done, and we must accept that in just simple trusting faith. So that's where we get the solas, like sola fide, faith alone. Uh, that, that comes from Luther and Luther's influence. And so we accept the truth of the gospel in faith. It's not you know, the strength of my faith or the works that I do. You know, that, that's kind of the history. And then, and then from there, it just kind of rolls uh, Luther's teaching. So he starts teaching more and more challenging, more and more of the church's authority, challenging certain things that are going on, immorality, the clergy, you name it. And he really starts to challenge things. So he's summoned to something called the Diet of Worms. And it's spelled worms. As a kid, when we read that in history, I was like, a diet of worms. Like, that is so, like, I always had a picture in my mind of a bowl of worms. You know, that's, that's, I don't know why. Or spaghetti. <laughs> there we go. But it, diet is just, y'all might have heard the German word Reichstag. I'm taking German right now, so this is all in my head. The reason I'm taking German right now is because Martin Luther was so influential in biblical studies, by the way. But... The Reichstag would be like a gathering. So a diet would be a synod or an assembly, a calling together. That's all that means. So it was at the, the place called Worms. So they would come together, and they were going to decide about this Luther problem. Luther shows up, which takes some guts because there's a good chance he's going to get burned at the stake when this thing's over with. <laughs> uh, Luther somehow escapes literally by the skin of his teeth. You know, he has the famous quote, I had to write it down because I, I never can get this right. He says, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me. In other words, I'm not backing down. I believe in faith, I'm right. You have to convict me with the word of God. I'm not going to go with church tradition, I'm not going to go with authority. You've got to teach it to me from God's word, I will not budge. He doesn't get burned at the stake. He has some local magistrates hide him and take care of him while he translates the German 
uh, the Bible into German for the German people. That's a big contribution of Luther. Uh, so that that's kind of the history of how Luther came about. And do you want me to just give some basic beliefs of Lutherans, what they believe yes. like today? Yeah, like, that'd be good, yeah. Okay, so if you run into a Lutheran today, they're going to have several beliefs to them that, that are unique to, to their fellowship. Well, not unique, but they're things you just need to know about them. They, they have a lot of beliefs in common with the Catholic Church. They believe that you baptize infants. They believe that Christ truly, truly is present in the Eucharist, not in some metaphorical sense, but that he is really present in the Eucharist, like body, blood of Christ in the Eucharist. They call it, now this is argument, arg, argued among some scholars. Some call it consubstantiation. Um, and some Lutherans push back on that word and say that's really not a good understanding of what they believe, but they believe in the real presence of Christ. They believe that you are truly regenerated in baptism, that baptism really does save you. They have a high view of baptism. Uh, they believe that through the power of the word of God. So when God's word promises something, so when Jesus says at the Last Supper, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. When the preacher, not because he's special, but when he says those words, so when a preacher stands at the Lord's Supper and holds up the bread and says, behold, the body of Christ, by the words of Christ, it actually accomplishes what has been said. And you may think that sounds crazy, but what a Lutheran would say well, in the Genesis account, God's word actually accomplishes what it says it's going to do. Like, if me and you say something, like I could say, David, I'm going to make a rabbit appear on this table. And you would look at me and go, okay, well, good luck with that. You know, I'm not going to say appear, rabbit, and it happens. But when God says stuff, it really happens. Yeah. So if Jesus says, if we read the words of Christ at the Lord's table and we say, take, eat, this is my body, then it is his body. So for them, the efficacy or the, the, um, the power of the sacraments found in the words of Jesus, the objective promises of God, those real words, and the actual elements, bread and wine. So when you combine the words of Christ and bread and wine in the faith of the faithful, you get a miracle. Okay, That's what they think. Same, same is true for baptism. The words... Of Christ. So when you say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you have water that's applied to that person, and the intention is baptism, you do receive remission of sins. Okay. Hard to argue with some of this stuff because it makes kind of sense. So that's Luther saying this. Now, so they have a high view of, of the gospel, a high view of the sacraments, and a high view of scripture. Now, in America, you're going to run into all kinds of different Lutherans. Uh, there are different groups of Lutherans. Uh, you've got different synods of the Lutheran Church. You have what's called the Evangelical Lutheran Church, which is probably the most liberal of all. You've got the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which is kind of more in the middle. And then you have the Wisconsin Evangelical Synod, which is very conservative. Now, what does that mean for Lutherans, liberal, conservative? Yeah. One way you can break it down really quick is ordination of women. Uh, so you would, the Wisconsin Synod does not ordain women. Uh, if you go to the other spectrum of, say, Evangelical Lutheran Church, then you're going to have a, even within different pastors in that church, you're going to have different views of the, of the inerrancy of Scripture, things like that. And you may see things being condoned and blessed that we would have trouble with, other Christians would struggle with. Then there's a smaller group out there called the American Association of Lutheran Churches. And if you follow, there's one very uh, famous Lutheran influencer right now, or actually he's a scholar, Jordan Cooper. So a lot of people out there might have heard of Jordan Cooper. He's very big on YouTube. Uh, he's a Lutheran pastor. 
uh, a guy by the name of Wolf Mueller as another Luther, Lutheran influencer that's very popular out there. And you probably heard of them. They're very conservative Lutherans. Um, the other really important movement, you want to just switch to Calvinism? Do we have time, you think, to do Calvinism? Uh, I think, think so, yeah. I think we're fine. All right, people. Well, if you're all okay, we'll do Calvinism. Well, we've about three and a half hours, so I think we're Okay. Fine. <laughs> just keep going, man. <laughs> this is like the podcast that never ends. <laughs> It's like the song that never ends. Remember that song that never ends? Uh, it yeah. just goes on and on, my friends. Yeah, some some people started singing and not knowing what it was. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> people are driving down the road and they think, is it the podcast that never ends? <laughs> Devin, come back. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right, so Cal- how do, so Calvinism, where do we, how do you get from Luther to, <laughs> to, to Calvin? Calvin's a little bit later than Luther, so you got to think Calvin's being born about the time Luther was ordained. So that's the difference in age. Luther will influence Calvin. So that's kind of where Luther is kind of the wellspring. But Calvin is a, a much better, maybe analyt, analytic, systematic theologian. Uh, Luther, it's hard to classify Luther. Luther is a passionate guy. Um, you know, when I think of Luther as a guy that's going to have some emotion, like what? It's a funny story about Luther, his wife one time, uh, was going around wearing black, like the garments for like mourning a death, and and Luther said, "Why why are you dressed like that?" She said, "I'm mourning the death of Martin Luther because the way you've been acting late, lately." <laughs> yeah. So he's a guy that was up and down, Luther, and you can read his correspondences. He he has some flowery language uh, that he will he would have with people, like when he's arguing about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He's arguing with Zwingli, who says Christ is not present. And he writes in beer suds, hoc es corpen meum. And in Latin, that is, you know, this is my body. Like he keeps writing it in beer suds, like this is my body. So he's a, he's a colorful fellow. Calvin, not so much. Calvin is very austere, serious. So if you want, you know, Calvin's not a guy. This is just descriptions coming from reputable biographers. So I don't know, people out there might take issue with this, but he would not be a guy we'd probably want to invite and hang out with and be silly on the Three Preacher podcast. Like the first ten minutes of this podcast, Calvin would not be rolling with it. Like he'd want to get to he want to get to business, you know, and talk yeah, theology. Some of our listeners they don't roll they're with like, it either. Yeah, they're probably you need to get to what you're. They probably fast forward ten minutes in and go, let's get to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but Calvin is a French guy. He's a lawyer. He is super smart, like kind of a Doogie Howser kind of guy. He's at twelve. People have already noticed. He's very smart. He has benefactors that pay for him to go to university. They see that he's so smart. Hey, I'm going to bankroll this kid because he's going places. Um, so law, uh, clergy in his future, all these things. Because back then, you know, if you're going to be anything, you need to be in the church. you got to be a clergy member to to be respected in that day and time. You know, that was... Wish that was still a <laughs> no, That is the opposite. <laughs> That's no, the opposite like, now. I had somebody tell me... I'm not making this up. I had somebody tell me... like, and it, People, like when they joke, they're going to tell you what they think, but... He's like, you know what they say, those that can't do, preach. I was like, thank you. It's good to know you have a high view of preachers. Anyway, but Calvin has this conversion experience, supposedly around this debated, like 1530, he comes to realize the gospel uh, and what we would think of in a more evangelical way of understanding it, his need for salvation, his affections start to change. And he writes what's called the Institutes of Christian Religion, one of the most influential documents in the Western Church. And he writes this in 1536. And that document's going to change a lot. I'm actually reading book four of that right now. Um, so it's still influential even today. Uh, 
he is, systematically goes through what he believes the Bible's teaching and is, is much more of a departure from Catholicism than, say, Luther. So Luther, you think of one grade away from Catholicism. Calvin is much further away in some of his teaching. Uh, Calvin gives us um, a very high view of Scripture, the way most of us read the Bible now. Uh, a lot of that comes from the influence of Calvin. Let me give you one that if you grew up in the churches of Christ, you would understand this and where it comes from. It's called the regulative principle of worship. In other words, if it is not commanded specifically or an example is not given in sacred scripture for something in the New Testament, then you're not allowed to do it in worship. So icons had to go. Images had to go. All that had to go. And the worship was stripped down very bare bones to the word and the sacrament. You would have the preaching of the word. Preaching became very important in Calvinism. Exposition of the word. A very brainy type of faith. Like intellectual. You know, to, to learn uh, the Bible. And then you would have the table. Uh, Calvin had a high view of the Lord's Supper too. He uh, had a high view of baptism. So to understand Calvin and how he saw the world. Let, let me just name a few things that will help you understand Calvinistic theology. First is covenant theology. A lot of Calvinist colleges will be called covenant, or that word covenant will be found in their name, because Calvin believes the Bible is bound together by covenants. You know, we would say you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, if Calvin were here, he would say, I might agree with that, but that personal relationship must be in the form of a covenant, which I tend to agree with. I think he's right about that. Uh, in a covenant, you're going to see certain things, and you see them all through the Bible. There's these, it's like hierarchy. God says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, here's what I promise you. I want you to be my people. You will come in, you will be my people. Here's what I'm doing for you. Here's what I require from you. So this is the covenant stipulations. Here are the blessings if you stay within my covenant. Here are the curses if you leave the covenant. And then there'll be a sign of the covenant. So circumcision would be the sign of the Old Testament. Like you get this sign and seal that you're in the covenant with God. Uh, Calvin would argue that baptism replaces circumcision as the sign and seal of the covenant to be in the new covenant. And uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Colossians 2, you hear some of that possibly, but he believes that baptism is a, a sign and seal of the covenant. And, and when you do look at the New Testament, you see these covenant structures. Think about this. In the New Testament, you get the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. There's your covenant blessings, blessed, blessed, blessed. Then in Matthew 23, you get the woes, 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 cursed, cursed, cursed. So you get covenant structure there. Here are the blessings, here are the curses. Uh, so the, the New Testament is also very covenantal. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So this sense of the Lord's Supper being covenant renewal was big with Calvin, which I also think he was right about that. Calvin also taught an extreme doctrine of predestination that basically... And you've got to understand this, Doctor. So I'm going to try to break it down really quick. I know we're running out of time, but Calvinistic theology is usually characterized with how they see salvation. It's a lot more than that, but how they see salvation is unique to them. For some people, they think it's unique. We are totally depraved, first of all. So me and you are dead in our sins, and there's no hope for us. Our wills are so jacked up, we can't even will the good. Like Even if I wanted to try, I could not will to do good it think about the old testament they would look at it and say they god gave them law and they failed over and over again because of their sinful passions of the flesh mm. so because that you are totally depraved god is going to have to 
elect you to salvation. So God's going to pick certain people, and he's going to say, I'm going to elect this person to salvation. Like I'm going to save them from their sins. Like I'm going to you know, unconditionally elect that person. And so if you're one of the elect, at some point in your life, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and regenerate you, and even your faith is a gift from God. It's not from you at all. God gives you faith. He supernaturally puts it into you through the power of the Spirit and regenerates you. And then if that's the case, then you will never fall away. If you're truly one of those that are saved, like once saved, always saved, you will never fall away. That, that's John Calvin. He gave us the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Uh, but with the understanding of election. See, once saved, always saved only makes sense if you believe in predestination the way, at least the way I look at it, is what Calvin taught. Um, so, here's the part people might, well, what about free will? Like, why, how do you work that in? Well, John Calvin would probably say, well, free will works like this. If you're dead and unregenerate and God leaves you to your free will, you're never going to choose the good. If God comes in and regenerates you to salvation, then you're going to will the good. So technically, you have free will. You're just bound to the nature that you have. If you're bound to the sinful nature, you're never going to choose the good. But once you're regenerate, you're going to have free will that, that wills the good. And that's called compatibilism. That's what that theory is called. It's a system of philosophy called free will based on compatibilism. And all compatibilism means is your will is compatible with your nature. If your nature is regenerate, your will will be good. If your nature is evil and decrepit and depraved, you will, you will will the evil. That, that's Calvin in a nutshell. Uh, or his adherents later believed that. And that's what you'll find in a lot of Presbyterian churches on their view of salvation. Then when you turn to the sacraments, you've got to understand them in light of that. This is where people get Calvinist wrong. Because Calvin has a high view of baptism. Like he actually believes it's efficacious. And that's a technical word that baptism really does something to you. Like it's a means of grace. God imparts his grace in baptism. But the only way baptism works is if you have regenerative faith. So if you're one of the elect, then baptism does actually do what it says it does. It's going to give you remission of sins. It's going to engraft you into the covenant. But if you're not regenerate, it does nothing to you. So you're just baptizing a person that's dead in their sins and there's nothing. Uh, they may be in the appear to be in the covenant community, but they're really not saved. Uh, the Lord's Supper is the same. For Calvin, he used the analogy for the Lord's Supper of like a, think of a container of uh, a glass container, and you turned it with its face down on the table, and you poured oil on top of it. That oil would never go in the container. But if you turn the container up and pour oil into it, it will receive the oil. If you have faith and you're regenerate, when you partake of the, the bread and the wine, you truly receive Christ present in the Eucharist. Now, for Calvin, it was not like a, a corporeal, like real physical presence of Christ. It was a spiritual presence, but you still experience Christ through the elements. Those elements, in some mystical way, connected you to the risen Christ. You got real grace. Uh, I have talked really fast. <laughs> but that, that's Calvinism, kind of like the big picture in a nutshell and you'll find that like in, if someone says they're a Reformed church or Reformed theology, that's Calvinistic. Presbyterians, to me, Presbyterians represent the closest um, to adherence to what Calvin taught, I believe. So if you want to find a church that, that you know really reflects Calvin's teachings, it's a Presbyterian church. And there are Baptist churches out there that are Reformed Baptist church churches, but they don't adhere to Calvin's view of baptism, of infant baptism.
How would Calvin deal with, or how did he deal with, election compared to, say, God doesn't desire for anyone to perish but for everyone to come to repentance? Yeah, it's qualified. And, and so there was something called limited atonement. That's a really good question you asked, actually. That, that's, this is a hot-button topic. So among um, some Southern Baptists and uh, Calvinists and churches across, I would say, Eastern Orthodox and others that, that have more of a concept of free will, more libertine free will, and this idea of the comprehensive nature of, the, of what Christ did, it was for everyone. You know, so what Jesus did was for everyone on the planet. And Luther was big about that. Now, Luther had a form of predestination, he believed, too, but not, not as explicit as Calvin. Not as deep. Calvin was more systematic and, and was more consistent mm. in his view. But that is, that, that is a problem where uh, people like Arthur W. Pink, he's a Reformed scholar, I mean, he just owns it. He says God did not die, for, or Christ did not die for everyone. He only died for the elect. Wow. And they'll hold to that position. Like, if you're... If you're a consistent Calvinist, you're going to say that. You know, there's other ways to kind of work work around that. But if you're being consistent to uh, this view of, you know, like the tulip doctrine, and you're really going to hold on to that. Tulip doctrine is what I kind of went through a minute ago, by the way. That's the acronym of you know, total depravity, unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. That's what tulip stands for. Um, so that... that Limited atonement is very problematic. What what some people have trouble with uh, when when they deal with uh, Calvinistic theology is the predestination uh, compatibilism. You know that God preselected certain people, and you if you're not one of the elect, there's no hope for you. Mm -hmm. Like you're just not. No amount of preaching is going to help you. You're dead. Like, and they would say to their defense, they're going to go to Paul and <clears throat> talk about we're dead in our sins and our trespasses, and the one argument they'll make is. Dead people don't unbury themselves. Like somebody's got to rescue them. Uh, there's ways that that's been worked around, and we'll talk about that later when we get more into like Methodists and churches across and what's been taught in some Southern Baptist circles. We'll talk about how that's that's understood. Dead in your sins and trespasses. We agree with that, by the way. But there would be maybe some pushback among some with this idea of you know we ha we can't respond at all to the gospel. And the idea of limited atonement is very problematic for some scholars. I didn't know anything much about Calvinism or anything. Grew up in Church of Christ, but then when my parents divorced, I spent a lot of years in Baptist Church uh, with my mom. And I tell people I've, I physically grew up in the Church of Christ, but I spiritually grew up in the Baptist Church uh, just because of the way they handle things. But it was great several years until I got my first introduction to predestination election and things like that and i remember talking to the pastor uh, about someone specifically and how i was trying to spend years trying to get to them and trying you know and they just kept making the same choices over and over again and, and he just straight up said to me well it just means he's not one of the, the chosen yeah. one of the elected and i said wait so how do you how do you know that well when you try and you, you try so long and they just don't give in that means they're not elected and you move on yeah. And that was the first <clears throat> moment in the years that I was in that church where I was like, something's wrong here. Like that is, I could not, uh, that was not compatible with the God that I believed in from scripture that loved everyone. God loved the world that he gave his son, not the chosen, not the selected. And so that's, that sent me down a path of where I really had to wrestle with it. Yeah. And that's a good, 
that's a very personal struggle too. That's not some just academic. That that's when the yeah. rubber hits the road when you personally interact with a theology and go, okay, what are the the ramifications for me? And my this is not just some academic enterprise, but these are real people that I know. You know, and I think of at that moment I thought of another guy I knew who spent his whole adult life, you know, trying to convert his father and his his dad at like seventy nine or something. You know, but he decides to become a Christian. He converts uh, at 79. I think he died like a year later. But he spent 40 years. And I just thought to myself, like, if if you had the idea that people are elected and you just give up after three or four tries, I know 40 years is a long time to stick with something. And yeah. a lot of us would probably give up and move on. But then that, then he never he never comes to Christ. Like it's, yeah. you know, or, or I don't know how they handle it. I think they'd probably say he would eventually. If you're chosen, you're going to come yeah. to. God's going to accomplish it at some point. Yeah. One thing that they, so the argument that would come to, say, an R.C. Sproul, I, I used to listen to him a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of Reformed pastors out there, teachers that are really good. And, and the great thing about them is they have a high view of the Bible. And so it's kind of a safe space for us because you know they're going to take Scripture serious. Mm-hmm. They really do really top-notch scholars come out of the Reformed tradition. So what they would say with, um, like, let's say, okay, I, I'm like you. You know, I would struggle with, with some of this and go, okay, I can't. It's hard for me to see God this way. What a pastor in the Reformed tradition would point to and say, well, God didn't have to elect any of us. He could have just left everybody in their sins. We all go to hell. But the fact that he picked anyone means he's gracious. Like, the fact that he would... And they'd point to there's always been that remnant theology anyway in the Bible yeah. where not everyone in Israel was saved. It was a, a remnant was saved. So to, to their defense, that would be the argument they come back to. And then they, the other argument I think that you would get is we have to let Scripture view shape our view of who God is. And so then you've got to kind of go back to the Bible and say, okay, what, what, from what perspective am I looking at it? Am I looking at it from the perspective, and I'm not saying I agree with what I'm about to say, but I'm just giving this, this to you to think, I'm trying to be charitable. Chris is converting right now. I'm becoming a Calvinist <laughs> theologian right here. My middle name is Calvin, by the way. Um, oh, boy. There we go. I just let the cat out of the bag. The um, So if you look at it from the perspective of we are helpless, we have no right to say, like the potter to the clay, we have no right to tell him, well, why did you make me like this? Why did you make me a vessel of wrath? That's not fair. When you're helpless... And there's no hope. The fact that God would save anyone, you should give glory to God for that. I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but like yeah. if you're in the state of total just messed upness and it's like I have no hope and we've got this creator that can help me, the fact that, that Jesus came and saved anyone is uber gracious. And so they would say they believe in the doctrines of grace and, and what they mean by that is it's called monergism. Moner, moner just think monergism. You've got this Think of the word energetic in one. God is doing everything. It's all to his glory. There's no part of your salvation you do. This idea that God is accomplishing the whole thing so it should give you assurance that as messed up as I am, if I'm one of the elect, God's going to see me through. So if I'm, and the fact that you're, to them, you're listening to this podcast, the fact you're going to church, the, the fact you like to read the Bible, it signs you're elect. And so then you have assurance, I'm one of the elect. God is going to see me through to the end, and he's going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. So that would be kind of what they would say, to give them full credit, you know, and try not to. I don't like caricaturing people's position, and I'll do that really quick, and that's why I need to be held accountable. But I think if you're giving them, 
So if I was going to give charity to both them and the Lutherans, the positives of the Lutherans would be God's word will accomplish what it's going to accomplish and the sacraments are efficacious based on the power of Jesus Christ. And I think that's pretty cool to think about. Like we think of baptism and supper and all that about what we're doing and works of ourselves. Even Lutherans believe when you come to worship, it is a response in praise that when you come to worship, it's all about God's grace being poured into you. So it worship on a on a divine liturgy. I think that's what they actually call it. They call it a divine liturgy because God's the one doing the work. God God's the one giving you all these gifts on Sunday. And no wonder you should want to beat the doors down to be there because he's doing it all. He's gracing you and our response is praise for the gifts of God. And the strengths of Calvinism, I think, is their covenant theology. They, they think very serious about the Bible. They're analytic and they will look at hard passages in the Bible and they will not flinch. Like a Calvinist, like there's times, there's passages a lot of times I want to flinch away. They do not flinch. They're like, I'm, I'm going to take the Bible and it's full orb for all it has to say even the parts I'm not comfortable with. And I, I do respect them for that. Yeah, I wasn't trying to, to bash anybody, by the way. I no, was, no, I, just, I didn't think you were at all. I think you are giving a personal response, and I do the same thing. We're human beings, man, and it's the emotional response is visceral. Like when you think, like, my child could not be one of the elect, yeah. and I've got to be okay with that, that's hard. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't sleep. I wouldn't sleep at night. No. I don't know. No, I would not. So we're not being ugly. We're just saying there's visceral, real human responses to theology. Yeah, I was thinking too, and maybe this is a different podcast to talk about, but you were talking about the Reformation and the state of things that led to, to Luther doing it. I was thinking it's interesting how history repeats itself. You were talking about uh, the, the the preachers or the ministers the not knowing the word, not know, yeah. you know, and I'm thinking like all the people that are in pulpits on Sunday mornings preaching what's what's not in scripture or yeah. what's not, you know, uh, what was the other thing you said? The people, I don't know. It was some of the, 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 the status of, I was like, man, that sounds like our, our situation right now that people are just being led by, Oh, that's what it was. You would go back to the Bible. You know, it yeah. sounds kind of crazy, but how many, how many different voices and books are we led by, you know, today it's, we put a self-help book above yeah. scripture or, you know, we want to be led by anyways. It's funny you say that because we're at a 500 year juncture. You know, you've got 500, you've got the, that's a huge, the, the fall of Rome in 500, the church changes radically. 1,000, you have the Great Schism, 1,500, the Reformation, now we're at that next 500-year seismic shift, a lot of people say. And that, you can actually take that, take that back to the Old Testament. Go back 500 B.C., you've got the Babylonian exile. Go back to 1000 BC. You've got David's uh, kingdom, the Davidic kingdom. 1500 BC, you got the Exodus. 2000 BC, the patriarchs Abraham. So the Bible itself follows a 500 year arc. So you're saying that the elections got high stakes this year? Right? <laughs> I guess so, man. <laughs> I was thinking three preachers podcast is like oh. the watershed moment. I'm actually sitting there thinking, Chris, they'll be, be talking about this like the 95 thesis. It all started when I tuned into the not the three preachers podcast. Well, actually, I was thinking you keep talking about you're working on your. Uh, your stuff for school, but actually, are you in there writing your own 95 thesis is what I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> nail them to the door of I don't know where. All right, so turn the page next week. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we'll look at the Radical Reformation. That's the next step in this progression. And the Radical Reformers, uh, you're going to see some of that come into America. You're going to see that in many of your own fellowships. So you're going to see these streams of thought continue, but you're going to see the Reformation taken further. 
and you'll get more restoration movements where it's not just reformation, but we got to restore what's been lost. All right. Well, then I guess until next week. Wait, wait, Devin's not here. How are we supposed to sign off? He's got something he says every time. It's really cool. We hope and pray that you are finding ways to serve and love your neighbors. Uh, peace and love. He's probably somewhere <laughs> praying for us right now. He's, he's not listening to this. What are you talking about?